Let's turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you need to use one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, you'll find the reading on page 148. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're in the middle of a sermon series on our core values or our DNA. It's very different from our normal pattern in the preaching ministry of the church, whereby we just sort of make our way straight through books of the Bible. Uh, so it, it, is, it is different, um, but we have felt the need to sort of just go public with these values, things that we have said we're willing to be punished for, things that we are committed to at the heart of who we are and what we do. And this morning we come to the value that we value Bible preaching rather than preaching from the Bible. That is to say that we value preaching that takes as its subject, as its shape, a text of Scripture rather than preaching that begins with a topic and then sorts out relevant passages, arranging them into a message of relevance. We value Bible preaching rather than preaching from the Bible. If I do nothing else this morning, I aim to show you that the call of Christian worship down throughout the ages has always been the Lord's call that His people might be gathered to Him so that they might hear His Word. That has always been the call of true Christian worship. And in order to see that, we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now, this is a long passage that I'm going to read all in one sitting, 40 verses. Uh, if you have a Bible, you'll be very helped by following along just to see uh, that what I'm reading comes from the text. 40 verses from Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is Moses, the man of God, addressing the people of Israel very shortly before his death. And he writes in verse 1 of chapter 4, And now, O Israel... Listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children, 
how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people of His own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and He swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land." I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord which He made with you and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly, by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke Him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you search after Him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that He swore to them. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, 
since the day that God created man on the earth and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Out of heaven He let you hear His voice that He might discipline you, and on earth He let you see His great fire, and you heard His words out of the midst of the fire. And because He loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with His own presence by His great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep His statutes and His commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach this wonderful text in Deuteronomy, we pray that You will give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That You would make us those who love You and therefore love Your Word and love the preaching of Your Word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. It is an unhappy and I'm sure unintended consequence of our digital age that despite all of our connectedness, we are more disconnected perhaps than we ever have been in human history. It is cliche at this point to point out the experience that each and every one of us has had of being out to dinner or in a coffee shop only to see a couple sitting at a table for two gazing intently at their cell phones rather than talking to one another. It doesn't matter if it's a 25th anniversary or just a night out on the town. It seems as though for all of our connectedness, we have lost the ability to communicate. You know what it looks like as man and wife scroll through their cell phones at their news feeds or the latest dose of social media adrenaline rush, all to find something that sort of interrupts the mundane and the boring in our normal, ordinary lives. All the while, with another human being sitting in front of us, ready to speak to us. Reminds me of a professor I had in college at Kent State who once told all of us that he didn't have a television in his house. One of the students responded by asking quizzically, what do you do when you have people over? And he <laughs> smiled as if he had set the entire thing up and he said, well, I talk to them. I wonder if he would have the same critique of cell phones. Incidentally, this is what makes uh, Sherry Turkle's book, Alone Together, brilliantly titled, Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less 
from each other. For all of our connectedness, we have lost the ability to communicate. Now, I bring that up simply to serve as a parable of sorts of the sneaking suspicion I have that many of us seem to relate to the Lord in very similar ways. We sit, as it were, across from the Bible where God has clearly and objectively spoken, and we scroll through the feeds of personal spiritual experience wondering whether or not God will speak to us. I heard the testimony of a young woman just this past week who came out of a school from California who was taught in a class how to, quote, hear the voice of God. She very wisely uh, interpreted all of that to say, by the end of the class, I was convinced that my voice was God's voice. How will we know God? We will only know God if He has spoken. Friends, that is what my burden is this morning, is simply to state that God has spoken and therefore we must listen. If God has spoken and we must listen, then therefore the primary focal point of Christian worship is the preaching of His Word. John Stott, that great man, once said, preaching is indispensable to Christianity. In other words, if you remove preaching, you have lost Christianity. Christianity is a message. It is good news. Proclaimed that Jesus has come and lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and has risen victoriously over the grave. That is Christianity. Christianity is bound up in preaching. Now this is going to be a very unusual message in that we are going to move very quickly through the passage that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4 just to build a theology of the God who speaks. I want you to leave with a bit of theology this morning. You'll be able to say God speaks. And because God speaks, this is what's true of our worship. After we've done that, we'll have a, another brief sermon. So you're getting two for the price of one. A topical bit on a defense of expository or biblical preaching. So you might think of this morning as a demonstration and a defense of expository preaching. So firstly, a demonstration. Deuteronomy chapter 4, God has spoken and therefore we must listen. The entire book of Deuteronomy is structured around sermons preached by Moses. In chapters 1 through 4, he walks the people of Israel through their history, God's gracious dealings with them, from Exodus 19 all the way to the end of the book of Numbers. And in chapter 4, he then implores them on the strength of God's gracious dealings with them that they must listen and obey uh, the Word of God. Later on at the end of chapter 4, all the way through chapter 21, Moses then preaches the law of God to the people of God. He preaches the Ten Commandments and their implications. And then finally, in chapters 29 and 30, he brings his sermon, if you will, to a close by explaining the blessings and the curses that are attached to obedience and disobedience. The whole book of Deuteronomy is built around the theology that God speaks. Now, as we look at verses 1 through 14 here of chapter 4, here's what we learn. The God who speaks demands his word be taught, heard, and obeyed. That's a simple message. You said in verse 1, And now, O Israel, listen, heard, 
to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, taught, and do them, obeyed, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land. Later on in verse 14, we call this tops and tails. We have the same message. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you were going over to possess. Moses is commanded here to preach the Word of God to the people of God. I want to just point out what is painfully obvious in the passage, and that is simply to say that Moses, as the preacher, does not have any prerogative whatsoever to, as it were, tamper with the mail. You know, it's a federal offense to tamper with the mail. There is an entire organization within the Postal Service, the OIG, special officers who investigate internal mail theft. That is, mail people who refuse to deliver the mail. You refuse to deliver the mail, what happens? You are fired, terminated from the Postal Service. God will not allow the mail to be tampered with. I want you to notice the way in which He instructs Moses. Verse 2, you shall not add, nor take from. Verse 5, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. See, it's, it's not enough, friends, to say, I'm interested in hearing what the preacher has had laid on his heart for this one. That is not strong enough. That does not come to terms with the earnestness of preaching. Moses does not preach what has been laid on his heart. He preaches what has been commanded to him. God will not have the male tampered with. Why? Here are three reasons that Moses gives for why he must preach God's Word and why it must be heard and obeyed. Number one, because of the dreadful results of disobedience. Moses goes on to say, you have seen with your own eyes what happened at Baal Peor. This is Numbers chapter 25, 1-9. to As you turn back there, you find that the people of Israel intermarry with the peoples around them. The issue here is not uh, sort of, uh, it's interfaith marriage, not interracial marriage. The problem is, is that the Israelites are taken captive and led to worship other gods. And so in Numbers chapter 25, we read that 24,000 Israelites die. 24,000 Israelites die because of the sin of idolatry. The Lord is clear. We must hear and preach and obey His Word because of the dreadful danger of disobedience, but also because of the peoples around you. Look at how Moses continues. Verse 5, See, I have taught you these statutes. Verse 6, Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God like this? It's commonly asserted that to focus on the preaching of the Bible, to focus on individual spiritual growth or corporate spiritual growth as a church somehow cuts off the evangelistic zeal or task. Notice here that in Moses' understanding, it is 
as the Israelites take God's word seriously, that the evangelistic mission to the people around them will increase. There is a profound implication for the community around us that is directly attached to whether we take God's word seriously. For this will be your wisdom, he says. When you have God's word and you keep them and you do them, the people will notice. And they will praise the God who is completely unique, unlike any other. Thirdly, because of the danger of forgetfulness. Martin Luther was famous for once being asked by people who attended his church, why is it that each and every week as we come in here, you tell us the same good news over and over and over again? To which he looked at the questioner and replied, well, first answer me this, why do you come in week after week looking as though you've forgotten it? (laughs) There is an incredible danger in forgetting Look at verse 9, only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. He goes on to talk about Exodus chapter 19, that great fearful sight as God gives the Ten Commandments to the people of God through Moses. Moses is clear here in Deuteronomy 4 that if we divorce ourselves from an anchoring to the Word of God, we will forget who God is. We will entirely forget who He is. Keep your soul diligently lest you forget. Number two, the God who speaks demands to be heard rather than seen. So if number one is the God who speaks demands His Word be taught, heard, and obeyed, number two is the God who speaks demands to be heard rather than seen. Friends, the second commandment exists for a reason. God is clear, not only that we will worship Him, but how we will worship Him. He forbids the making of any image whatsoever. And that is Moses' point all the way from verse 15 through verse 31. Look at what he says in verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form. That's what he's just said. When you were around the mountain at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, it's the same place. You did not see a form, there was only a voice. Therefore, watch yourselves, since you saw no form. It's been said that God has made man and woman in his own image, and ever since we've been trying to repay the favor. Here Moses walks the people backwards through all the days of creation, days six, five and four in which God fills the creation that he's made simply to say do not make for yourselves an image of anything not male or female not land creature not flying creature not water-bound creature do not look to the stars do not look to the moon Do not make for yourself any image. Only hear my voice. Friends, we are not at liberty to determine how God will have us worship Him. Here, He is absolutely clear. He demands to be heard rather than seen. 
Look at verse 20. The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people for His own inheritance as you are this day. It's, it's hard to think that Moses isn't thinking back to that dreadful occurrence in Exodus 32 when he comes down from receiving the law of God and the first thing that he sees is his brother Aaron and the Israelites dancing around a golden calf and Aaron the priest proclaiming, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Aaron is not trying to set up a rival god. He's trying to create an image for the only true God. God will have nothing of it. There's a reason that God is adamant that He would rather be heard than seen is that any attempt that you and I make to image Him falls woefully short of His glory. One of my friends introduced me to a, a, an Instagram account called Nailed It where people try to replicate these fancy desserts or interior design, things that take a lot of skill, and the entire account is just absolute failures to match the quality of what they're trying to imitate. And so it is with creating images to help us in our worship. They fall woefully short. Even when we think we've nailed it, we've, we've actually dishonored God. The writer to the Hebrews picks up on this passage in Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 18 to 29 to explain the fact that Christian ministry, even to this day, still revolves around the, the voice of God through the Scriptures. He tells us that we have not come to what may be touched. He's thinking about Horeb, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He goes on to say that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And his application of all of it is see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Again, the call of Christian worship is the call to gather God's people to hear His voice. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, verse 24, a jealous God. He will not share His glory with any other God, nor will He share His glory with our feeble attempts to image Him. Secondly, under the heading of He would rather be heard than seen, he tells his people that when we disobey his voice or disconnect from his voice, we will be disciplined until we return to his voice. That's the thrust of verses 25 to 31. When you go into the land and you father children and children's children and you begin to worship other gods, I will send you into exile. And he says, You will worship gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. In effect, saying you, you, you want your fill of images, I'll send you into exile and you can worship images until your heart's content. But they can't do anything for you. But when you seek Me, you will return to Me. Verse 30, when? When you obey My voice. When you forfeit your idols and obey My voice. 
How do we relate to God, friends? How do you and I relate to God this morning? We relate to God this morning through this book. This is where God has spoken. This is where God still speaks. Number three, the God who speaks demands to be known as the only God. That's verses 32 to 40. The God who speaks demands to be known as the only God. Ask now, Moses says, of the days that are past, which were before you. Has such a great thing as this ever happened or was ever heard of? Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? What Moses is getting at is that notion that we, we sometimes quote from the, the philosopher, I think, therefore I am. As it relates to the true and living God and our understanding of Him, it's as if to say, He speaks, therefore He is. This is Francis Schaeffer, the great apologist. He is there and He is not silent. Moses says, have you ever heard of, of such a thing as this? That a God would allow His people to hear His voice. Think about the gracious activity of God to reveal Himself in His Word. And here's the real kicker that rebukes our familiarity and our cavalier attitude as we approach the Bible. Have you ever heard of a God speaking to His people, allowing His people to hear His voice and live? Did you see that? Have you ever heard of a God speaking to His people, allowing His people to hear His voice, verse 33, and still live? I mean, the implication is absolutely clear. It's a miracle that any of us walk out of here on a Sunday. That God would be that gracious to us. That He would allow us to hear His Word and live. It's far too weighty a thing. I fear with all of our access to the Bible on our phones and an embarrassing amount of English translations, we've lost the wonder that God speaks to us and allows us. He says it three times in this text, I let them, I let them, I let them. He demands to be known as the only God because He alone spoke to you and because He alone delivered you. He continues on. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart, verse 39. Why? Because verse 37, He loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with His own presence by His great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in. Know therefore, the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. There is no other saving God. There is no other God. The only God that you and I have to deal with this morning is the God who speaks definitively, authoritatively in His Word. And if this is true, then this has massive implications for the way in which we go about the preaching ministry of the church. Simply stated yet again, we value Bible preaching rather than preaching from the Bible. 
We transition now into seven blessings of what we're going to call consecutive expository preaching. Now, this is not going to come as a surprise to anybody who's been around for the past couple of years. But I just want to define what we mean when we, when we talk about preaching at First Baptist. We're talking about what we call consecutive. That means normally, not always, but normally, we are making our way consecutively through a particular book of the Bible. And we're doing so in a way that is expository or expositional. That means that each sermon takes for its main point, its content, its structure, and its tone a particular text of Scripture. That's what we mean by preaching. Now, I want to give you seven benefits of this kind of preaching and why we would do it in light of the fact that God speaks. I'm unapologetically taking these headings from Christopher Ash, who has written a little book on listening to preaching that you can find in the bookstall. This comes from his book, The Priority of Preaching. I have seven points. Don't worry, we'll move through them quickly. Consecutive expository preaching, number one safeguards God's agenda against being hijacked by ours. Do you catch that? We return now to the the fact that Moses has no ability to tamper with the male. Verse 5 of chapter 4, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. Friends, that prerogative to control the agenda of Christian preaching still belongs to the Lord Himself. Now, don't misunderstand me. Each and every time preaching is done, there is a choice by the preacher, whoever he might be, to preach this passage rather than these passages. There is always a choice to preach this book at this time rather than that book at this time. But what I am talking about is the difference between allowing a book of the Bible to set the agenda over and against allowing either my pet topics, and I have them, or felt needs to set the preaching agenda. We won't do that. Can't do that. God sets the agenda. We think the best way to ensure that God is setting the agenda is to preach consecutive expository sermons. Now listen, what I mean by this is it does not matter who is in the pulpit on any given Sunday. God is the preacher. Martin Luther, again, said the Word of God rightly preached is the Word of God. So understand this. This is going to be a place where young preachers are trained. The first time I ever preached at Parkside Church, I was 26 years old with absolutely no formal seminary education. Friends, if Alistair Begg can let me preach at 26 with no formal theological education, you better believe that I'm going to be abundantly generous. One of the great joys of ministry here is having other guys who can preach the Bible Scott and Jeremy, I'm thinking especially this morning of the two guys that are flanking me, of Kendall and of Johnny. They have the freedom to preach here and to 
I'm going to say it, be boring sometimes. They have the freedom to preach here and fumble around sometimes. They have the freedom to preach here and to discover their voice as preachers. That's your great ministry to the wider church because one day they'll be in pulpits of their own. What a joy it'll be to be able to say, you know, I can remember when he was learning here. And I'm just so proud of what God has done in his life. No matter who's in the pulpit, God is the preacher. We're safeguarding God's agenda against being hijacked by ours. Number two, consecutive expository preaching makes it harder for us to abuse the Bible by reading it out of context. Friends, context is so vital. How many of you can finish this quote? To be or not to be. That is, in fact, the question, is it not? Do you know what what the context of that quote is? The context of that quote is a character in Shakespeare's epic determining whether or not to commit suicide. Does that change the meaning of to be, that is to live or not to be, that is to commit suicide? Of course it does. Context is everything. Listen to the way that David Ninehuis, he's a professor at Seattle Pacific University, explains his experience with young men. This is young men entering into Bible college in order to train for Christian ministry. He says, quote, Some of my students attend popular non-denominational churches led by entrepreneurial leaders who claim to be Bible-believing and strive to offer sermons that are relevant for successful Christian living. Unfortunately, in too many cases, this formula results in a preacher appealing to a short text of Scripture completely out of context in order to support a predetermined set of biblical principles to guide the congregants' daily lives. The only Bible these students encounter, sadly, is the version that is carefully distilled according to the theological and ideological concerns that have shaped the spiritual formation of the lead pastor. These are young men going in to gospel ministry. They don't know what the book of Romans means or is about. They don't know the themes of Galatians. They don't know how the storyline of Scripture fits together. Sure, they know all have fallen short of the glory of God. Certainly, they know uh, Galatians 6.14, may I boast in nothing other than the cross of Jesus my Lord by whom I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. But they don't know what the book is about. Expository preaching safeguards against this. Number three, consecutive expository preaching dilutes the selectivity of the preacher. Let's just, let's just assume for a moment that I am to preach on the topic of eternal security. Whether or not a Christian can lose his or her salvation. What am I to do? I, I begin to scan in my mind for the relevant passages that pertain to that issue, and I put the material together in an outline, and I, and I proclaim but how do you have any confidence that I've, I've accounted for every passage? How do I know that I've given right weight or balance to the pertinent texts that refer to that issue? You can't, and I can't. Mark Dever is right in saying that a steady diet of topical preaching, in essence, only allows a church to grow to the level of its pastor. Friends, you can ask my wife, I'm a mess. If all I do is get you to my level, we're all in trouble. But praise God, in preaching through books of the Bible, you will excel beyond me. 
Number four, consecutive expository preaching keeps the content of the sermon fresh and surprising. We will be preaching Old and New Testaments, poetic and narrative literature, letters, prophecies, short passages, and long. You can be assured that you are going to hear things from the pulpit, from the Bible, that at first blush seem strange to you. That's the beauty of God's Word. It always surprises us, always challenges us, always sharpens us. Number five, consecutive expository preaching makes for variety in the style of the sermon. Again, you will not read David's lament over his enemies in the Psalms in the same way that you will read the glories of marital love, nor, at least you shouldn't, from the Song of Solomon. Nor will you read either of those passages in the same way that you'll read of the joy of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. The tone of the passage dictates the tone of the sermon. Number six, this may be the most important, purely practical reason why we prefer Bible preaching over preaching from the Bible. Consecutive expository preaching models good, nourishing Bible reading for the ordinary Christian. I was with a group of friends this week, and I was sharing with one of them, if I do nothing else, and I mean this, if I do nothing else in my life and ministry, not only at First Baptist Church, but just with the life that God has given me, the people who have sat under my ministry can say, you know what, I don't remember a lick of what he preached. I know the sermons got progressively longer as he went. He started doing two-for-ones. But I don't remember what he said at any point, but I, I know this. I do know that I've learned to read the Bible a little bit better than I did before he came. Praise God, I will go to my eternal reward with a smile on my face that you will never be able to wipe away. The reason that we do expository preaching is to try and help each and every one of us learn how to read the Bible well in context for what it actually means and says. And number seven, the final reason, the most important theological reason, this is the end-all, be-all. Consecutive expository preaching helps me preach the whole Christ from the whole of Scripture. If you have half a Bible, you have half a Christian. If you have half a Bible, you'll have half a Christ. I want you to consider for yourself what Jesus tells the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 44, as he's combating them. He says to them, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Do you catch what Jesus is saying? He's saying every bit of the Bible is about me. Friends, why do we value being gospel-centered? Because the Bible is gospel-centered. There is not a passage in the entire Scriptures that does not proclaim Jesus. Not one. I ask you this, to to seriously consider whether or not if I were to devote myself to topical preaching, if I would ever preach to you from 1 Chronicles chapter 2. Do you know what 1 Chronicles chapter 2 is? It's a genealogy. 
I'm going to tell you right now, I'm weird, but I'm not that weird that I would wake up in the morning and say, it's a bit of First Chronicles 2 today. But I'll tell you what, there's something to be learned of Christ in First Chronicles chapter 2. Once preached from Ezra, genealogy in Ezra, and I began by saying, you know, I can see why nobody really wants to hear this this morning. You know, I, I took a trip to Washington, D.C. and started looking around and went to all the sites and came to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And, you know, I just realized all that is is a list of names, so I, I moved on to the next thing. And the punch is supposed to be there. Of course I go and look at the list of names. That's our history. That's a life. It's meaningful. In the same way the genealogies are lives, they're meaningful. They point us to Jesus. They show that He's the descendant of David, the only Savior. Friends, the only way that we will truly know Christ as God desires us to know Christ is if we handle the entire Bible. And the only way that I know that I'm going to do that is if I commit myself until the day I die until faith becomes sight, to preaching consecutive expository sermons. So who do we worship? We worship a God who speaks. Just think about that. I want you to, I want you to really think about that and, and let that weigh on your heart that God, God had no... Uh, it, it, he wasn't under any obligation to do so. You understand? No obligation Carl Henry, one of the greatest theologians, he was president of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, he, he described God's revelation as God forfeiting His personal privacy on behalf of those He loves. Loved ones, what you have between the two leather-bound covers of your Bible is God forfeiting His personal privacy so that you might 